selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan... Both of us walked away from the MCQ yesterday with a solid 4-3 result in Sealed and no day two. Look, I think that's the best of both worlds, or the best of all worlds, really. Look, positive winning record, not your whole Saturday lost, and then free as a bird on Sunday. Free as a bird on Sunday. I don't know. I would still idly like to be on the Pro Tour at some point, but yeah, I had a medium-ish sealed pool, medium-plus sealed pool. Had a lot of bombs, but not the good, like, meat and bones of the sealed deck to really support them. I had Reality Chip and Inventive Iteration, both of which were insane. I had a Tatsunari, but on the splash, and then just a bunch of green filler and a bunch of blue filler. I think by the time I started 4-0, and then by the time I got to those 4-0, 4-1 decks, my opponents just had decks with the rares and the right filler and it was so hard to compete you know yeah i mean like i had a pretty straightforward build of a, a pretty solid black white deck like looked like a draft deck i would say like you had the artifact enchantment payoffs i think i had eight and eight of each type double virus beetle double spirited companion like a really a lot of removal double uh touch the spirit realm intercessors arrest etc but like when you face someone who's got the green loops or honestly just Imperial Oath felt so oppressive. <laughs> Imperial Oath like, was backbreaking. Yeah. yeah. I tweeted that like this is the environmental sciences of the sealed format. And just because it feels like do you open Imperial Oath or not is a big question in sealed of Neon Dynasty. Yeah, I very much in the later rounds felt the lack of my own Imperial Oaths and got owned by my opponent's Imperial Oaths. Yeah. So, you know, uh, pretty awesome to see folks getting to day two. We're recording Sunday morning, so I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be prowling Twitter to see if uh, anyone's streaming their day two run. That's always exciting to watch. Yeah, for sure. Other than the MCQ, what's going on with Neon Dynasty? You know, we've got a full episode of very specific stuff to talk about, but I am curious, like, what have you been drafting? What has the format felt like for you these days? I have played a lot of Magic oh, this yeah, week. Oh, yeah, spring, I've been on week, spring, spring break. break. Yeah, it's back to school for me tomorrow, so... 
I actually got a little magicked out by the end of the week. I played a boatload. So <laughs> I pretty much have not touched green or red in a week. I, I drafted a boatload and I drafted Esper all week. I drafted red once after first picking a red rare. What was it? The Disciple, the Goro Goro thing, the mm-hmm. Tutu Haster. Yeah. I first picked that once and then got cut out of red and was like, never again am I first picking a red card. And I like, you know, I'll still draft red if I get pushed into it, but you just don't get pushed into it because people want to draft red. And while there are people that want to draft red, I don't want to draft red personally. And then green, you just have to get multiple of the good uncommons. And that also just is not coming together for me. I think I drafted green once or twice all week. The rest of the time, it was mostly white, black with a smattering of blue, black and a lot of blue, white actually. I have not felt like hard avoiding a color in such a long time like that I do about green specifically. Red has opened up this week in best of three. Um, I had a, a really sad draft the other day where I had, you, I think you were watching it on stream yesterday. I had, I got like Kami War second pick, Spirit or Soul Sisters Call, I don't know, pick six or something. And then got pushed off of both of them and moved into mono red because it was so stupid open. Um, so I, I have drafted red a bit more. I was feeling similar to you, but it seems to have opened up. But green, like the other day I had Kami of Transience as my pack one pick one rare. And I took Prodigy's prototype over it because I was like, what am I going to, what's the percent I'm going to end up in green? 5% at this point? Like, and green was cut to ribbons. And then I tweeted about that today. And then the next draft I did, I got a second pick, Besager reaches Skyward. And I was like, well, someone took an uncommon over this. Maybe green will be open. And I took it and then immediately cut. I was like, never again. I'm not drafting green ever again. (laughs) I mean, and those are like hard and fast stances that are probably not like the best draft practice necessarily. But I think, I don't know, there's something to both green and red, especially not feeling very open and best of one. It feels like if you've drafted a lot, you sort of get a sense for what is more consistently open. And if you Mm -hmm. can, and the Esper decks can compete is the thing because green's contested. Nobody's ending up with the decks. That's like, Whoa, I have seven premium sagas anymore. You know, people have two or three. And once they only have two or three, you can compete with your Imperial oaths and your Kami of terrible secrets, you know, drawing you a car. That's enough value to hang with the green decks in the late game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just not getting those decks on the other side of the battlefield unless people have been like sitting on something for a couple of weeks and then deciding to to run out the drafts, you know? Yeah. So today we're going to bring back an old favorite, or at least a favorite of ours, uh, that we're going to do here as an episode. We're doing What's the Play? We didn't get to do these for Vow or Midnight Hunt because those formats were so short, but this is, I think, a nice way to sort of round things out. I mean, I said that New Capenna was like right around the corner. It's sort of right around the corner content-wise, right? Because we're doing this... Next week is going to be 50 takes, and then we're rolling into preview season. I am jazzed for a new format. Let's go. Yeah, it's going to be really, really sweet. So uh, if you've not ever tuned into one of these style episodes, we're going to talk about some in-game decisions. We'll have a link where you download the show so you can follow along at home with all these screenshots, courtesy of 17lands.com. Awesome, awesome resource for reviewing your games. Oftentimes, people don't know that this is a feature on 17 Lands, but there's a details tab when you look at your draft. So you can see like your draft log, you can see your decks, and then the details button. That's where you can see all of your games and you can go back and review them. A really good tool, and we're going to be utilizing that here. Uh, So we'll have all of those for you to follow along at home, and we'll do our best to describe those scenarios here in the episode and talk about some really interesting decisions for this format. Uh, Before we dive into those, a few housekeeping things to take care of. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Ben, we rolled out some new uh, features over on the Patreon page, some new rewards. And one of the things that we're doing is a quarterly draft or new. 
soon with you and me. And we're getting into Q2 here in just a few days. So we're gonna have to schedule that with our patrons in a little bit. Let's do it. The first one that we did that was kind of impromptu over Christmas break was a blast. So I'm looking forward to getting it on the schedule. Yeah, that was super fun and uh, looking forward to doing that with our patrons. If that sounds fun to you, head on over to the Patreon page. See if that reward tier works for you. Of course, all of our patrons get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. We talk about that as being the best limited tech support 24-7 on the internet. A lot of other really good stuff over there on the Patreon page uh, for giving back to the show. And if that sounds of interest to you, check that out. And of course, we want to shout our new patrons the week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming Jesse and Daniel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you in part by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything and everything you need, magic related. Been talking about it for the last couple of weeks, but CFP Pro is still holding strong at $9.99 a month, and you get that amount back in store credit. So if you're going to be shopping at Channel Fireball, if you're spending 10 bucks a month on magic cards anyway, CFP Pro is free for you, and you get extra articles from me, Ethan, Alex, a bunch of pros. So if you're on the fence about CFP Pro and you spend money on Magic cards, and you can do it at the Channel Fireball Marketplace, which supports local game stores, there's no reason to not be on CFP Pro. In addition to that, I want to shout out just some other content that's not necessarily like officially, I mean, it is CFB, but we do these showdown videos that you and I do for Channel Fireball a couple times a month where you and I join the same draft pod. We draft in the same draft pod and then direct challenge each other afterwards in a showdown match, which is super fun. And I think not necessarily everybody knows that those exist. And that type of content is possible because of CFB supporting us. That wouldn't exist without CFB helping you and I out. And so that's why we want to send listeners back to Channel Fireball. So if you like that type of content, please support Channel Fireball and make sure you use code LOL when you do so that they know that we sent you over there. Of course, Ben wants to talk about the showdown videos, the (laughs) weeks that he's just been absolutely savaging me. It's so funny. Like the weeks that you're to my right are the ones that I dread. Like, let me check where people are sitting and you're to my right. I'm like, well, I just know even like I'm going to first pick this green card, but I know there's no way if green is open that any cards of that color are making their way to me. That is true. I actually got green underneath you this past week, though, somehow. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the yeah, you got the sky turtles. Well, that's probably just because I'm terrible, you know. Um, so <laughs> let's check out uh, some of these. What's the play decisions? First up, we've got a deck of mine, a really sweet Classic late format Ethan Esper vehicles pile deck with triple prodigies prototype, my new favorite card. Uh, blue white as the base, splashing black for Grease Fang, Okiba Boss, that's the rare that gets back vehicles, and Naomi Pillar of Order. Um, a really, really sweet little deck here. And for folks who are uh, going to be following along at home and maybe doing some extracurricular stuff, checking out other games, you'll see that uh, this is game three of match three, so the, the deciding game of uh, the trophy match here. But game one, Ben, was zero turns and I lost. And I'll tell you why. Um, so, you know, I, I loaded up the the match and then nothing was happening. Okay. And so I was like, I was like, oh, is my opponent going to time down? But then I got nervous that maybe my arena had froze. And so I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll close the client real quick and reopen it just in case it's on me. And that was my thought process. But what I did was I clicked the cog and then I conceded. conceded. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, cool. So I had to play the finals match on super duper hard mode here, having to win two games of two. Hang on. Do you remember the old days on MTGO when 
you literally could just do that. Like your timer, you would still see the opponent's timer yeah. going down on your screen, but you were actually the one that had disconnected. That was so tilting. And you were always paranoid about like, did my opponent disconnect or am I the one that's disconnected? And there was uh-huh. no way to know it was the worst. Well, and if your computer was bad, you'd be like, do I have three minutes to close <laughs> right. Magic Online and have it boot up again? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, so yeah, very, very stressful. So here we are, game three of match three. You're on the draw and you know your opponent is on mono red. And you see the following opening hand. Two planes and an island, so three lands. You have Reckoner, Reckoner Bankbuster, the two-mana rare vehicle. You have Imperial Recovery Unit, three-drop vehicle. You have Shrine Steward, and then you have Imperial Oath. Oof. Keep or Mull on the draw. That's a snap keep in most situations in the dark. But I think if you know you're against Mono Red, you just aren't impacting the board enough early to keep this. I think you need more early defense. It's just too scary, right? If I play Bankbuster on two, and then I'm unlikely to have something that crews it, right? Because it's crew three. And then I'm playing Recover Unit on three, and I'm not impacting the board. I also think you could you could keep this on the play. It's still dicey on the play. Still dicey on the play, but I think on the draw, you definitely mulligan. So I was sad and shipped it back. And then I was faced with this seven, which was two planes. So just two lands. And then moving up the curve, we have Machiko's Reign of Truth, the White Saga, Arm Guard Familiar. We have a Network Terminal and then Sunblade Samurai and Naomi Pillar of Order. Yeah, this hand is a lot more interesting. I think you're keeping this first and foremost. Right, but you're not. This this also isn't that great, right? No, this is not great. I mean, it's certainly not ideal. You'd rather it be a planes and an island so that you could play arm guard familiar on two for sure. But mm-hmm. I think you have to decide what to bottom here, and I think already be thinking about what's your plan for this game. Right, less than ideal hand, best card that you have far and away for stabilizing is Naomi Pillar of Order. Right, if you mm-hmm. can set up a scenario where Naomi comes down and makes a 4-4 and a 2-2, that's a great way to try to stabilize against a red deck. Mm -hmm. So my first instinct looking at this was to put back Mishiko's Reign of Truth because it doesn't do anything. It's generally not great, right? It's an aggressive card. You're going to be behind. You already have a bad hand. But I think there's a real argument to putting back Sunblade Samurai and just dangling Mishiko's Reign of Truth for no value, like leading up to the turn you think you're going to play Naomi, so that you can make a 4-4 and a 2-2. So I think actually the right answer is putting back Sunblade Samurai here and hoping that you hit a third land drop or just assuming that you're going to hit a third land drop to hit Network Terminal. And then you can get down Arm Guard Familiar as your artifact, Mishikos as your enchantment, and then Naomi and get a 4-4 and a 2-2. Right. And I think you could make an argument for putting back Familiar as well because it doesn't contribute to the Naomi plan. But I think like... One of the things you really want to think about, especially when you mulligan and when you're in these situations where like, it's this is an extreme situation, right? I, I know my opponent is on this very aggressive plan, so I know th- what I have to do in this matchup, which is just not die. And I'm already, you know, down a card and, and maybe this hand is a little awkward. So I have to sculpt, like I have to already think with this hand, what's the ideal scenario? The ideal scenario is ripping two lands off the top, right? So I can go Reign of Truth on two, Terminal on three, Naomi on four with the trigger. I think, right? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So I think that's why like Sunblade Samurai doesn't really fit in there because it's like, oh, well, you could cycle Samurai on two to get your third land so you could play Terminal on three. But like, 
that doesn't really fit into the plan. And if I happen to do to draw a blue source, playing familiar is also great because of the ward two. I know it's not going to get picked off, so I'll likely be able to trade it in combat. There's also, yeah, I, I don't know. The more I look at this, the more I kind of like pitching arm guard familiar because yeah, you I have think- the artifact definitely for network terminal. And then mm-hmm. Sunblade Samurai guarantees you your third land drop. I think I actually like pitching familiar here. Well, but if, but, but so Sunblade Samurai guarantees you your third land, but I guess, are you going to cycle it on two? I still think you, I still think you want to play, like, let's say you don't draw a land. Like by the time you get to turn two, your hand is all spells. Yeah. I still think you're going to play Reign of Truth just for that. Like, I think you have to high roll and go, okay, I'm hoping that I draw land land here so that I can go terminal Naomi. Yeah. I think that at least that's my my thought process. I think I would be willing to delay it by a turn. Just a second. Yeah, like to guarantee that you were going to get your third land drop. I think it's pretty big. And the two life from Samurai helps against a red deck too. Mm-hmm, for sure. I, I think I like putting back arm guard familiar. Yeah, I, I put back the Samurai, but I, I like your reasoning there too. So moving on a few turns, we're going to be in the same game here from this mulligan. We're going to go to turn number four. So here's how things have developed. We did draw Uncharted Haven first. So we got to drop that tapped name blue and cast the familiar on two that traded off for, I think, a voltage surge. What we're facing down here is our opponent has three mountains. They're all tapped out. They have a Sekenzin smelter and a tapped 3-1 construct with haste. On our side of things, we got three lands and the network terminal in play. Our hand has developed to get another planes. An Iganjo Seat of the Empire, that's the white legendary land that you can channel out to deal four damage with, and an Imperial Recovery Unit. We haven't made a land drop for the turn, so we've got effectively, I think, two choices for the turn here. We can play a land and play Naomi. We won't get the 2-2 along with Naomi, but the 4-4 body does theoretically hold off the 2-2 and the 3-1 from our opponent. Or we can play Reign of Truth for no value, hold up Iganjo, channel that out to kill an attacker, and then the following turn will have Terminal and Reign of Truth in play, cast Naomi, and get the trigger, get the guaranteed 2-2. Yeah, I think ultimately those two scenarios you described come down to greed versus playing <laughs> it safe. I mean, certainly if you dangle Naomi this turn and your plan works, and then you get a Mishiko's your Naomi next turn to push it through... Like for a large chunk of damage, your opponent's going to be unlikely to block it. You get a 2-2 back on blocks. That scenario sounds great. But what if the opponent just has voltage surge or, mm-hmm. you know, like there's so many ways that plan goes wrong. And you, I don't think you need the upside of that plan to win. And honestly, getting Iganjo to kill an attacker is pretty appealing. You're pretty stable if you take that line. So mm-hmm. I think ultimately I, I'm much more interested in settling for safety rather than greed here so i I think i would play mishiko's hold up iganjo plan to kill an attacker and then the following turn play naomi and guarantee myself a 4-4 and a 2-2 so here's the question what if this iganjo is a planes i i I also should mention the life totals i guess our opponent's at 20 we're at 15 so let's say you don't have iganjo do you still think like what could you take this turn off play reign of truth play recovery unit take five go to 10, and then the following turn, Naomi. I'm just it's like, if you play Naomi this turn and they attack into it, you just can't block, right? You have to block. You have to block. Okay. You have to block. So then I hate that. So then I think I still would wait with Naomi and just take five this turn. Uh, you, is that terrible? I think that's <laughs> terrible. I think if you don't have Iganjo, I think you have to play. Have to play Naomi. Naomi. 
And I think you have to block. I think you just have to hope they don't attack. Oof. Because what are the ways that Red has to push through Naomi, right? Voltage Surge, but they're two for wanting themselves. Bolor, uh-huh. they're two for wanting themselves. Like, there's uh-huh. not a lot of ways they get through Naomi without right, as spending long as two you, resources. As long as you block the... I think I think there's like a world where they only attack with the 3-1 and you go, well, then that's Kindled Fury and you don't block. But if they attack with both, I think you block Smelter and just say, all right, I'll take the two for one. Right. And I think you're willing to let the, just the construct through. Yes. If they only so. attack with just the construct. But yeah, if you don't have a Ganjo, the equation changes significantly. And I think you just do have to play Naomi. Yeah, and that is what I did. I played Rain of Truth, had the Aganjo for an attacker, played Naomi the following turn, and was able to be stable Mabel this game and win. Boom. All right, next we're going to take a look at one of mine. This is a pretty stereotypical blue-black ninjas deck. Got three network disruptors at the bottom of the curve, and then a bunch of ninjas. Quad Mukatai Ambusher, that's the 3-2 lifelinker. Triple Moonsnare Specialist, and then some rares. Also, we've got an Inventive Iteration and a Kotos, the Silent Spider. But just picture a blue-black tempo ninjas deck. Not a lot of hard removal, and you've got the deck. Nice. All right, so here's the scenario. You've got this blue-black ninjas deck. You're at 30 life, thanks to a Mukatai Ambusher going unopposed for a few turns, and your opponent is at 14. Your Mukatai Ambusher just survived combat against a Wandering Emperor that tried to ambush it. And you cast suit up in response to them putting the first strike counter on something. So you've got a Mukatai ambusher that's still alive. Your opponent's side of the battlefield is the Wandering Emperor and two planes at a forest. And no, they did not cheat. The, the creature that they just tried to put the plus one plus one counter on was the careful cultivation token that can tap for a green mana. So they did have the requisite four mana to play the Wandering Emperor. So you have a decision now. So you have an island left untapped after playing suit up to potentially run out network disruptor here. And so basically, you're trying to figure out how to deal with this Wandering Emperor. The opponent has Wandering Emperor, Naked Board, you've got Mukatai Ambusher, Island Untapped, and Network Disruptor. And the first question is, do you play Network Disruptor? Which I think is super interesting, right? Because you can potentially save it to tap down a blocker and then force through an attack with Mukatai Ambusher. Or you can play it and likely get in a hit for one with your Network Disruptor. And so other things we're thinking about, the rest of your hand is Island, Swamp, Clawing Torment, Network Disruptor, and Twashi Guidebot. So do we play this Network Disruptor? And what is our plan long term to kill the Wandering Emperor? So when I first saw this What's the Play, I did think, yes, you want to play Network Disruptor this turn because it ensures you get a a flying threat in play to threaten the Wandering Emperor on the following turn, especially with Twashi Guidebot. I think that's less exciting if you don't have Guidebot in hand. But because you do, then you can be like, all right, I'll put the counter on the Disruptor. I can probably take care of the Wandering Emperor in two turns as long as they don't have a flyer. But the more I look at this hand, the more I think, okay, so what do you think is likely for your opponent to do? And I think this is something that uh, you and I are are quite good at is like anticipating what the following turn is. But I don't like in coaching sessions, a lot of the time, I don't see people doing this. There's a lot of like, first level thinking of just like, what am I what am I going to do with my turn? Well, also, let's play out what the, the likely scenario is for your opponent on their turn. I think the likely scenario is they play a creature and they minus Emperor to make a 2-2, right? I disagree because that was my first that was my first thought, right? My first thought was I'll, you know, just have this Mukatai Ambusher and then I have two ways to force Mukatai Ambusher through. Like you have the Clawing Torment and the Network Disruptor. Mm -hmm. But your opponent also just has the option of minus two down tick, kill your Ambusher. And then you have Uh... no pressure 
which is terrible, right? So I yes. don't think that's even an option because okay. if they choose to minus two, you're totally done for. Yeah. Okay. That's a really, really good point. Great. Great. So I, then I think, yes, I agree with playing disruptor. Great. I went level two, Ben went level three <laughs> thinking, and that's why he's better, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I like that. I like playing the disruptor out this turn. Well, I was so paralyzed. I did everything you did. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to play Network Disruptor. This is awesome. I have a flying threat. I could put the guide bot counter on it. And then I was like, wait a second. I don't have to do that. And then I was like, wait a second. I do have to <laughs> I do, do that. Have to do yeah. That. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So we did play the Network Disruptor to try to pressure the Wandering Emperor. This is a saga of what's the plays here. Yeah, I like this. This is all from one game. So next up, we're checking in on this game. Your opponent did, after you played the Network Disruptor, took their next turn, and they played Bearer of Memory leaving up a forest untapped, and they down-ticked the Wandering Emperor to make a Samurai. So they hit their fourth land drop, played Bearer, made a Samurai, and it's now back to you. Your battlefield is Network Disruptor and Mukatai Ambusher, and you play your fifth land, so you have three islands, two swamps, and your hand is Kotos the Silent Spider, Island, Clawing Torment, Guidebot. So your options are play Kotos, Kotose, whatever, get careful cultivation out of their yard, see what's going on in their hand. Or you could play Guidebot, put the counter on Disruptor, get in two to Wandering Emperor, putting it down to one. You also have Clawing Torment at your disposal, so you could torment like the three-two, play Guidebot, put the counter on Ambusher, which forces them to chump with the two-two on Ambusher, you only get Emperor down to one, but then you have three creatures in play that are threats. And then the following turn, they could down tick Wandering Emperor, make a 2-2, play a creature. But then you still have Disruptor. As long as that creature doesn't have flying or reach, Disruptor can finish off Emperor. Oof, I don't know. This is tough. I mean, I think you're definitely playing Guidebot. You're definitely playing Guidebot. The question is whether to put the counter on Network Disruptor or Ambusher. And I think it boils down to the same thing it boiled down to the first time. If you put it on Ambusher, you're leaving them the option to have minus two up, which I think is ultimately bad for you because you're, that... you're planning to attack with the Ambusher, they chump, and then the Wandering Emperor is gone, but you lose your Ambusher. I, I don't know. That's not that bad, I don't think. It's not that bad, but I think it's better to get the Emperor down to... You're just, you're just guaranteed killing the Emperor over two turns unless the opponent does something awesome by putting the counter on Network Disruptor. So the something awesome is just a removal spell, right? Yeah. So they either need a removal spell, a flyer, or a thing with reach. That doesn't seem crazy in green-white. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not happy with my assessment here, folks. Yeah, I don't know. This is tough. I, I, I think I might ultimately go for the Guidebot counter on the 3-2, Clawing Torment on their 3-2, which forces a chump, only gets Emperor down to 2, but then they're put in an awkward spot of like they can cash an emperor to kill your four three lifelinker or they have to, you know, build out a larger board. Yeah, I, I, I actually I think that line is actually better. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that is not are, what I did. <laughs> these are always the most awkward because I've been in this spot before where I've done a what's the play. We've looked at it before the show and been like, yeah, great. This is a great one to look at. <laughs> and then we go through it and the other person is like, what about this other thing? And then the person who's what's the play it is is like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> huh? Well, it's not what I did. Let's move on anyway. Yeah, you would think we didn't prep before the show. Let me tell you, there were lots of conversations before the show about <laughs> these what's the plays. Uh, so, yeah. 
Uh, that is not what I did. I ended up putting the guidebot counter on the network disruptor to hit the wandering emperor down to one. But it sounds like I think that clawing torment line might actually work out better. Okay, so what did you end up doing? You so you played guybot, put the counter on the disruptor, just attack with that, and wandering emperor down to one. Okay, yes. I mean that's still you're still in a good spot. You have torment in hand. You have three attackers. I think this is totally fine. Yeah. Your opponent then on their next turn chooses to plus wandering emperor on their samurai token and passes after hitting their fifth land drop with all of their mana up, shipping the turn back to you. So their board is Wandering Emperor, 3-3 Samurai, Bearer of Memory, and you have Network Disruptor that's a 2-2 thanks to your Guidebot counter, Mukatai Ambusher, Tawashi Guidebot, and then your draw for the turn is Nozumi Blade Blesser. So your hand is Blade Blesser, Kotos the Silent Spider, Clawing Torment, and you've got to figure out how to kill the Wandering Emperor. Face-up play is, I think, just attack Network Disruptor at the Wandering Emperor. But I'm mighty suspicious that my opponent passed with four cards in hand and five lands up. So I think you could just attack with Network Disruptor. You also, I think, have the option to Clawing Torment now their 3-3 Samurai and swing out. And either your Mukatai Ambusher or Tawashi Guidebot trades with Bearer of Memory. So then, ideally, you have three lethal threats headed at the Wandering Emperor and your opponent only has one blocker. So they have to have two ways to interact with your stuff then before Wandering Emperor wouldn't die. And then if you do successfully kill Wandering Emperor, you can Kotos the Silent Spider back your opponent's Wandering Emperor, which is pretty appealing. So even if you end up losing a card here, I think ultimately worth it to be able to Kotos your opponent's Wandering Emperor. Agreed. I think the other thing to think about here, other than, okay, my opponent passed with four cards and five open mana, is that they chose to uptick Wandering Emperor, right? They chose to put a plus plus one counter on a creature rather than if you if you were your opponent and you knew, okay, Network Disruptor is going to attack Wandering Emperor and kill it next turn anyway. You make a samurai. You make a samurai. And so they didn't do that. So they clearly have something to mess with the Disruptor, right? Yes, they're assuming my Wandering Emperor is living through this next turn. Exactly. So I think that's the correct assessment. I also think like, yes, I definitely, I see the full, full upside of waiting for Katose to grab Wandering Emperor out of the bin. You could also pre-combat it to see what's going on in their hand. Ooh, right? I hadn't even thought about that option. Wow. Is that right? I don't know. Because like, what are you going to see? Like, what are they likely to have? I mean, unless it's like Kyodai, like the Flash 3-3 flying rare, like it's probably just like Rebuke or Intervention or something. Oof, I don't know. I <laughs> Now that you've pointed out the pre-combat, because I don't think we need necessarily the value to win the game. I don't think you need it either. I kind of like pre-combating Katos. So then you get, I mean, you get careful cultivation out of their yard, which isn't anything, but you do get to look at their hand and see what's going on. And then you still have the option of casting Clawing Torment because you have six mana in play. Yeah. Woo. Magic is hard. Magic is hard, baby. Yeah. So what, what ended up happening here? So I did end up going with my line of thought something was up. So I wanted to swing with the whole team. Mm -hmm. So I clawing tormented their 3-3 and swung out with the team and turns out the opponent did, bingo, bango, bongo, have Wanderer's intervention to kill my 2-2 flyer. But we still nabbed the Wandering Emperor with our Tawashi Guidebot. So they blocked uh, Bear of Memory onto the Mukatai Ambusher and Guidebot got through unopposed to take down the Wandering Emperor. But that is a disaster. If they have two things there, mm -hmm. you just lose the game on the spot. I don't know. I think it might be right to pre-combat Kotos. But are you su still supposed to not attack? Like, let's say they have Intervention and Master's Rebuke. Are you supposed to not attack all still? 
I think you are, right? Just to clear the board. Then you three for three and you have a four four. Like Yeah, and then you have better post combat things with Katos to get. Like you can right. get their master's rebuke or whatever e- post combat. Exactly. I still think you're supposed to do it. Yeah. That's what that's why like I think the Katos thing, like it's interesting to think about doing it pre-combat to see what's up. But other like it's hard for me to think about other than that rare flash three three flyer. And even then I'd just be like, Well, I can't beat this. So like, what am I supposed to do anyway? I just don't think that anything is going to really change the fact that you're still supposed to attack all three. Well, if it is the rare 3-3 flash flyer and no other interaction, you also can compete with the value from the Wandering Emperor with an unopposed Tawashi Guidebot, I think. Maybe? I guess your your life total is so high right now. We're going way down the rabbit hole. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm sure this is so easy to follow along. Before the show, Ben was like, I actually have another what's the play for you. And he just started describing it to me. And I was like, you don't have a link? He was like, this is what people have to do when they listen to the show <laughs> is just follow along to someone saying it. I was like, okay, that's true. Let me focus up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really hard. That, the, I love that sequence. There's so much to think about in there. All right, let's uh, take a look at a couple from my MCQ run yesterday. So my deck, as I said, was just black-white value, double companion, double virus beetle, uh, payoffs at the top of the curve like Naomi and Okiba Salvage and When We Were Young, and a ton of removal. So first up here, we've got a board state of your opponent at 22 life and you're at 5 life, Ben. 5 on the ropes. Your opponent is tapped out. A lot of like pre-combat stuff happened, but the, the board has settled with us having a spirited companion and a crude high-speed hoverbike. As well, on the board, we have an Era of Enlightenment about to flip next turn and an Ecologist's Terrarium, and our only card in hand is When We Were Young. And your opponent is swinging out with a Hand of Enlightenment, the 2-2 First Strike, a Jukai Preserver with no counter, and a 2-2 spirit token with a counter on it so a 2-2 first strike a 3-3 and a 2-2 so being at five life means we either are chumping a 3-3 chumping a 3-3 and trading with a 2-2 and then thinking about how the heck can we claw back into this game yeah this is a desperate spot i don't know what's right here so i think you have several options my first instinct on seeing this screenshot was to double block the Jukai Preserver so that you're only facing down two two twos. Mm. And then you can hopefully, I mean, you have a lot of mana. You have eight mm-hmm. lands. So if you top deck a creature, then you have your Air of Enlightenment creature plus another creature mm-hmm. that you can then, because you'll still have an artifact and an enchantment, right? The thing number one is that we have to have an artifact and an enchantment after the dust settles so that we were when we were young is gaining us life. And you have that because of Terrarium and your Air of Enlightenment that's about to flip. Right. So if you trade both with the 3-3, then you're staring down two two twos, and then you can hope to top deck a creature. And if you do, you're golden, right? You're in pretty mm-hmm. good shape because then if you have a creature CMC four or less, then you've got two blockers plus the when we were young up on blocks. Mm-hmm. If you brick on a creature, it's not the end of the world right. because you can use your era to trade with their era plus gain four life to put you at five. And then your two two first striker can potentially become a 3-3 first striker to hold back their spirit token and other things on the ground. Or your other option, if you're not willing to double block Jukai Preserver and go to one, you could, I think, chump Jukai Preserver and leave Spirited Companion alive so that then the following turn you have Spirited Companion plus your Air of Enlightenment to guarantee yourself two creatures. Like worst case scenario, let's say you brick on drawing a creature. Mm -hmm. Then you've got two creatures still to 
go back up on a higher life total. But the Spirited Companion post gaining you three life is just not doing much against your opponent's two two twos. I guess you can put the Ecologist Terrarium token on it to turn it into a two two, right? And trade down the road. I don't know. I kind of like double blocking the Jukai Preserver and going to one. We're two for two here. In I, I'm embarrassed to say, I if, of all the options to me, I did not consider double blocking the three three. I I thought about. I was like, okay, I could double chump. I was thinking like, no, or not double chump. I could chump the three three with my one one and then trade my bike for their two two. Go to three, arrow flips. Hopefully, I draw a thing. Whatever. I didn't consider double block the three three, and then I have the two two. Um, what I ended up doing was chumping with the bike so that I guaranteed myself two bodies in play to then gain seven life and hopefully take out two of their three creatures on the following turn on blocks. But I didn't consider the double block. I think I think we're far enough behind that like we just have to hope we do draw a creature. And so double block, go to one, then hope we draw a creature, have two bodies, gain a bunch with when we were young, blow them out on blocks and try and claw back in the game. I like that. Right. That's what I was thinking is that you're far enough behind that you have to hope to draw a creature. And even if you don't, you're not dead as it stands. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. All right. I like that one. Uh, One other game with this deck. We've got a a fairly complex board, but I think it's going to boil down to just a few options here. So I'll talk you through what's going on. We're at 18. Our opponent's at eight. Um, On our side of the board, we've got an arrested Cloudsteel Kieran a seven-tail mentor, a virus beetle, and a high-speed hoverbike with two plus one plus one counters on it. Did you know that Okiba Salvage can get back vehicles? I did know that. Yeah, I I learned that in this MCQ run. I was like, ooh, (laughs) I can get back my bike and now it's a 4-4 flyer. You love to see it. Um, We've got seven lands in play and a March of Otherworldly Light in hand. That's the rare X and a white instant exile target artifact creature or enchantment with mana value X or less. Okay, our opponent's side of the board. They have six mana. They have an Atsushi, the Blazing Sky with an arrest on it, thankfully. They have two samurai tokens from an Imperial Oath. They have an experimental synthesizer, and they just cast Behold the Unspeakable, which is on chapter one. So all of our creatures have minus two, minus O. So Virus Beetle cannot crew the bike. Seven Tail Mentor cannot crew the bike. Cloudsteel Kieran has one power, but can't crew the bike because it's arrested. Opponent has one card in hand. So here's what it boils down to. The life totals are important here, right? We're at 18, they're at eight, and the bike having two counters on it does mean that if... We can attack with it this turn. We get them on a two-turn clock potentially, right? Get them down to four this turn. And then if they don't have a way to deal with a flyer on their turn, then we get them dead on the following turn. Yes. But do we think they're going to find a way to deal with that with Behold the Unspeakable? So I think that we only have one card to play, which is March of Otherworldly Light. And I think we will only really have two targets. Take out the Behold the Unspeakable, which doesn't give us an attack this turn, but reduces the amount of looks they have. Or we take out our Intercessor's Arrest this turn, crew the bike, attack for four, unlock the Cloudsteel Kieran as well, and say, okay, you're now on a two-turn clock. You have one turn to find something for this bike. Can you do it? Yeah, I think much like the earlier example with Naomi, this comes down to whether or not you want to be greedy or conservative. And I th- I think there's not anything particularly wrong with, I think, going for broke here and trying to get them dead with a hover bike on a two-turn clock because they get to see, I don't know, they see so many cards. If you right. don't kill Behold the Unspeakable here, they see five cards. That's 
a lot of cards to assume five, that they can't deal with a hover bike. Five plus they can crack synthesizer, right? So that's six potential cards for them to see. That's a lot. I I, I think you're unnecessarily being risky if you take that line because yeah. you're not dying anytime soon either. So the only mm-hmm. difference between killing behold is that it's three turns instead of two. So it's more turns, but they actually get to see less mm-hmm. cards yep. over those turns. So I, I mm-hmm. think I would settle on marching the behold here to ultimately take a little bit longer, but a little bit safer approach. Yep. I think that's correct. And that is not the line I took. And I ended up losing this game. Brutal. Yeah, it was rough. All right, next up here, we've got one of mine, and this is the classic scenario with the modern age. We have to decide what to pitch. Yeah. So life totals, we're at 20, opponent is at 10. Our side of the board is the following. We have tapped out two forests, two planes, and a grafted growth on one of those planes. So it taps for any color of mana. We've got papercraft decoy untapped and a tapped Igonjo exemplar that is a 4-3, thanks to having attacked this turn and having a plus one plus one counter on it. So really, it's just a three, two. We've got the modern age in play, and we just played it. So we drew a card and we're having to decide what to pitch. Before we get to that decision, the opponent has quite the brew. They've got plains, island, island, swamp, forest, forest. So full four color monstrosity over there. And they have the reality chip naked on their side of the battle. Just (laughs) 04 standing there in all of its glory. And three cards in hand. So presumably, like going to be able to play a creature and equip if they would like to. Our hand that we have just drawn our card from the modern age is Harmonious Emergence. That's the three and a green enchantment that makes a four or five haster. Born to Drive that you can channel to make two one one pilots. Or if you enchant a creature, uh, the enchanted permanent gets plus one plus one for each creature and vehicle you control. And we also have Geothermal Kami. Three and a green for the four three. When it ETBs, you can return an enchantment you control to its owner's hand. If you do, you gain three life. And we have to pitch one of these three cards to our modern age looting trigger that we just played. Okay, so a couple things to talk about. First of all, I want to say that after our discussion of Born to Drive, I guess, was it last week where I was like, oh, I think this card's great. I've been using it to channel out and ambush X1s. And you were like, I've literally never never channeled it. I only put it on creatures. So I've been playing it a lot more because I've been drafting all these like vehicle decks. And I have finally, you know, gotten to experience you know, attacking with a 1313 or whatever. <laughs> so um, good. So good. And if you happen to be, I don't know, like it's hard to have a ton of protection spells when you're not playing green, but man, if you can have a Tameo safe safekeeping when you have that card, oof, feels like unbeatable. Feels great. Yeah, or uh, whatever, the, the the samurai, the uncommon that gives something indestructible, that's also great. So yeah, so I think the thing to think about here is what are we like seeing as the roles in this match? And I think... We have to be the beatdown. I mean, not only our opponent's board is not very impressive with the reality chip being naked, as you put it, and us, you know, trying to pressure them with our Iganjo exemplar, and and you know, maybe we have a hasty four or five next turn. But the longer the game goes, given what's the information we have, they're gonna win. As long as they don't die, the reality chip is going to take over the game, right? Yes. That was the conclusion I came to as well. So I think you have to make decisions thinking about the maximum pressure you can put on your opponent. So what are we planning to do next turn? I think next turn, ideally, we're playing Harmonious Emergence and attacking. Maybe we'll have attacks with everything. Like So they'll have an 4 whatever, whatever else they play. Maybe we'll have attacks with everything. Maybe we just have an attack with a 4-5. Fine. Then the following turn, 
we probably want a born to drive something to have more attacks, right? Like that's going to help push more damage for us. Or maybe we end up in a spot where we want to go wide and use the two one ones. The the other option is the Kami, which again presents four power on the board. We definitely don't want to reduce our board state unless we're thinking about picking up the grafted growth to replay it to put a counter on something. That's just quite slow. And I don't think the three life matters to us at all, right? If we're thinking, hey, we're the beatdown, you know, the three life isn't gonna matter. Either they're gonna stabilize and pull ahead on cards or we're gonna win. So I think the cards that I like the most of this hand are Emergence and Born to Drive, and I think I would pitch the Kami. One of the other things that I was thinking about, I also ended up pitching the Kami was, well, I could slam jam Born to Drive and then if they have something like an intercessor's arrest or whatever, I can uh, use the Kami to pick it up to put it on something else. I think there's just a lot of things to consider. But ultimately, I came to the conclusions you came to, which was I've got to kill the opponent because they're winning the long game. And I think of the three cards in my hand, the two best at pushing damage are Born to Drive and Harmonious Emergence. And we just need to push damage over the next couple turns. So I did end up pitching the Kami. Well, and it's so appealing to think about well, maybe even, not, so I think playing Emergence the following turn is definitely right. And then maybe you draw something else, you know, you're going to have another loot the following turn with Modern Age. But, you know, even Born to Drive just being able to finish off your opponent, like Born to Drive on Modern Age in three turns, like assuming they don't have a, a way to block it, that could just close out the game randomly. Like they're at six and then you're like, oops, here's four additional damage and I win. Right. Really interesting. And I think just in general, Modern Ages are so hard to play and to discard. I, I have settled on tending to not turn to my modern ages if I have other options because I almost value the looting more than I value the two, three body at this point. And it's so hard to maximize the looting when you slam it on turn two. And I have been terrified of having multiple modern ages on the battlefield because I think you just end up losing out on a lot of the value when they're chaining the loots at the same time. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. It's so funny. I think it's, I, I hadn't thought about this until you were just talking about this, which is that I think it's really been hard for me to shake my initial impressions of those sagas in terms of feeling like I need to play them first so they flip fast. Like I've even felt that way about Era of Enlightenment, just being like, I actually would rather play Spirit and Companion on too, because like, I just don't really know what I want to scry to the top. I'm sort of in a spot where like lands or spells are good draws for me. And I don't really need, I'm not like, oh God, this has to flip by turn five or it's useless. It's like, no, it's still going to be good. It's fine. Like I don't need to run this out on turn two. Right. Well, and you do if you don't have other plays, but given yeah. the choice between turn twoing modern age and turn twoing something else, I'm often playing the something else now as opposed to the modern age whereas early in the format i was just slamming the modern age because i wanted to get it into a creature as quick as possible mm -hmm. i think you really are missing out on some of the value of the card when you do that yeah i think that's fair all right next up we've got another one of mine so this is just a normal blue white value deck if you take a look at the deck it's got behold it's got ao the dawn sky as like two bombs at the top of the curve and then just Rock solid, a couple modern ages, papercraft decoys, touch the spirit realm, a couple searchlight companions. Also, can we talk about how awesome searchlight companion is? Yeah, it's really good. I, there, I, I've been on a journey with that card too. Of like, it's it's good, I guess. And then oh, it's good with nin if I care about ninjas, or it's good if I care about types. Like, no, it's just good. It's just good. Just good. Period. Yep. Yeah, card was just outstanding for my opponents. I would have killed for two searchlight companions in the MCQ yesterday. 
Oh, yeah. My, my colorless cards were three walking skyscrapers. <laughs> I, I am, was on a similar. I had a skyscraper and two of the 778 seven, vehicles. Like, what and that the was heck it. am I supposed to do with these? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, blue-white value deck with Behold the Unspeakable and AO the Dawn Sky. If we take a look at this board. Life totals were at 13. Opponent is at 18. But the board is fairly stable for both people. So our side of the battlefield is Moon Circuit Hacker, Searchlight Companion, and two one one spirit tokens. We just hit our fifth land drop for the turn. So we've got Tranquil Cove, three planes, and an island. And our hand is the following. We've got Papercraft Decoy, Behold the Unspeakable, Ao the Dawn Sky, Touch the Spirit Realm, and When We Were Young. And then opponent's side of the battlefield, they've got five lands tapped out for a Behold the Unspeakable that they just cast, which is on chapter one. So all of our stuff has minus two minus O and no attacks. And they've got a Prosperous Thief and a Papercraft Decoy that attacked us the previous turn. They've got one treasure left over from thieving with their Prosperous Thief. So we have to decide how best to develop our board here. And I think this ultimately boils down to, do you want to I wish Touch the Spirit Realm could exile our opponent's Behold, but it can't. It's only artifact or creature. I always check that when my opponents play I know. Behold the Unspeakable. You just wish it were O-Ring. It would be probably too powerful if it were. I don't know, really? Like, I think it's so funny. I think maybe like four weeks ago, I would have just cast Touch the Spirit Realm and then been super sad when like <laughs> I couldn't click on Behold. Because I've definitely done that in the format at some point. I definitely have a like memory of doing that to something, but then never again. So yes, cannot cannot target enchantments with that. So I think ultimately you're trying to decide whether you want to slam AO the Dawn Sky or your own Behold the Unspeakable here. And you're just trying to decide what's what's best for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very appealing to get down a 5-4 Vigilant Flyer on this board. They don't have a way to interact with it immediately. You know, you have to wait for Behold to flip, but then at that point, you can use Touch the Spirit Realm to exile their creature. You know, play AO now, and that sets up Behold nicely later. But the reason to hold hold Behold, sorry about that, the reason to hold Behold at this point <laughs> is to to try, you know, you always want to try and set up having the zero or one card thing, right? So you can draw four. Yes, but you're not going to be able to do that. Like you don't have lands. You've got tons of action in hand. You have when we were young. So like you're going to be full in your hand or fuller than zero or one cards when you want to cast behold. So I think especially given that you have touched the spirit realm in your hand as a protection spell for AO, right? You can like wait, hopefully to get to seven mana, play AO and then have it as a, you know, you don't need it need to time it perfectly against blue white specifically a lot of the time right because their most common removal is going to be intercessor's arrest or tamio's completion so you can just you know flicker it from out from under that easily but i still think i might just like getting down behold this turn yeah that i think is the correct answer i mean i don't even think it's close i think that is the correct answer Hmm. but i didn't do that because i was like great i can slam my dragon on five i have these four other creatures if they kill my dragon, I'm going to end up with a board of three threes. This is going to be awesome. So I slammed AO and passed the turn. And then the behold trigger went off. And I was like, oh, they're seeing a lot of cards here. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, blue and white's removal isn't going to kill my AO. This is yeah. going to go horribly wrong for me. Right. It's a it's a lot different if they're like blue black, I think, because then you could be like, well, maybe they have ink or twisted embrace. But like against blue white, you're like, this, this isn't dying. This is either getting enchanted or getting exiled. Or going unopposed. But the odds that it's going unopposed, again, when your opponent gets to see five cards, are not good in your favor. And I think 
you're just not losing, right? This game's going to go on forever. You have your own behold. You have when we were young, you've touched the spirit realm. Like there's no reason to be in a hurry to put down AO here. I think you're just supposed to play your own behold and then, you know, you get some cards. That's going to help you find lands to hit your seventh land drop to play AO with touch the spirit realm up, protecting it. Like you just need to be thinking way longer term about this game than I was. I was just like, sweet, Mythic Dragon. If it dies, awesome. I'm going to get a bunch of 3-3s. And I just played it too quick without actually stopping, taking a beat, and like thinking about the big picture of the game. And so many of my mistakes boil down to one of those two things, either just not thinking, like playing too quickly, or assuming that something is true about the game that is not true. And I did both of these things in that instance, right? I just slammed AO. And I was also assuming if it dies, I'm going to have a board of three threes. And neither of those things were true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. And and the last thing that seems to be the theme of this episode is that letting your opponent untap with behold, not that you have the option to not do that. But it's just really powerful. Like, that's one of the things I always remind myself, I'm always so caught up in trying to time it. So I get the draw for scry Two, draw Two is basically the same. Yes. Like, it's just so many cards to see. Yeah, the first window you have to play Behold where it benefits you, I think you just play Behold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And this was a window I had to play Behold, and I did not take it. <laughs> Sad. And what did they do? Did they play my favorite card, Fall of Lord Conda? They didn't play your favorite card, Fall of Lord Conda. They played Repel the Vile and Exile mm. my AO. And I did end up losing, I think, as a result of just slamming AO there, which was a bummer because this deck was good. Do you think it's any different if you don't have Touch the Spirit Realm in your hand? Like you don't have a way to protect AO. So is it like it just like they're either going to kill it or not? No, I don't. I don't think it. I still think the right play is to play Behold, right? Because you have the tools to make the game go long. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to be in a hurry. So maybe you play some other threat that makes them use their removal first on that other threat. Or maybe you find your touch the spirit realm off of your behold, you know? Yeah. Like if it's in the deck, the, the answer is play behold here. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, let's close things out here with one of yours, but I'm going to talk you through it. So you've got a sweet little black, white artifact plus enchantments deck. You've got a white shrine. You've got my favorite fall of Lord Conda. You got some ninja stuff, double lion sash. Oof, that's pretty sweet. Here's the board. Ooh, everybody's close to death. <laughs> Both players at four life. <laughs> yeah. Your opponent's board is a selfless samurai, an armed guard familiar, a vector glider, so a flipped modern age, and a Hanada dawn crowned that has attacked you for four in the air, and I guess is threatening lethal for you next turn. Woof. Your board is a moth rider patrol, a papercraft decoy, a flipped Okiba reckoner raid, so two two menace. Double Dakuchi Shadow Walker, so two five fives, and your hand is a Lion Sash, and you have six mana in play, three of it being white. So could potentially cast Sash, equip it, and have two activations. And because we're so deep in the game, there's definitely two permanents to be exiled. So it's interesting because the way you phrase this, this is why I wanted to do this one as our last one. The way you phrase this in our show notes is you are facing down lethal. How do you avoid it? Yeah, we're not even facing down lethal. We should have the game one. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's so funny. Like, this is classic Ben Wernie, why me, where you're phrasing this. It's your turn and you're like, you're facing down lethal. And I, so I was like, OK, OK, what do we do? What do we do? How do we how do we pressure them to make blocks so that they are? And I'm like, wait, we can pressure them enough to kill them, right? <laughs> yes, you can. So how do you do it? So the answer here, and I even went through this. I am embarrassed to say that I went through this thought process. I thought, okay, I could play Lion Sash and put it on my Nazumi Road Captain 
So we have six mana. We can play it, equip it, and eat two things, which makes mm-hmm. our Nozumi Road Captain a 4-4. I thought we can do that, and then we can make three lethal attackers to force them to chump. And I just literally missed the, the Nozumi Road Captain had Menace. So my thought process in that line was, okay, we can make three lethal attackers. They have to block all three, and then they're left with just the Hanada and I block with my Moth Rider Patrol, and then we kill them the following turn. So I forgot my Nozumi Road Captain had Menace. So I was thinking, mm-hmm. is there any way, any reason to do that? And I somehow came to the conclusion of no, that I, I didn't want to do that, and I just wanted to at- play it safe and attack with the two Dakuchi Shadow Walkers so that I still had the tap ability of Moth Rider Patrol up, even though it's either tapping or blocking, or like so that I could somehow respond to a removal spell. I don't know what happened in my head here. If Nozumi Road Captain doesn't have Menace, which it does, then what they can do is triple block and then use Samurai to save the Vector Glider, and then you do die on the following turn on the crackback. Yes. I, but I had even forgotten that <laughs> Samurai could like block sack. I don't know what happened. All my the brain cards just... text was removed in this scenario. <laughs> I, I mean, my... I think it. I think it's important to note that your opponent does have, they have four mana untapped and a card in hand. So like they could be able to interact in some way, like they could have a Wanderer's Intervention or something. But, you know, I think you, you this, this board is tenuous enough. This game is tenuous enough. And the fact that you do have the ability to... Threaten lethal plus by threatening lethal, not in fact take lethal the following turn, I think is worth doing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah, I, this is just a classic case of like, I, you feel behind, 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 behind. Yes, this is yes, one of yes. those where you're behind the whole game and it's so hard to make the mental shift of, oh, I'm actually not behind. I win. Like, just looking at this board state face up, I'm so embarrassed <laughs> that I didn't <laughs> make the play with the lion sash, but you just got tunnel visioned on other things. I mean, that's one of the hardest things. One of the things that, that I feel like people ask about are like, it would be so great to be able to write an article on or do an episode on, but it's so hard. Turning the corner is a really difficult thing to like put into a very grokkable package, a neat little package to be like, this is how you do it. This is the, the way to assess it. But part of the thing, like especially when you're just looking at these screenshots or snapshots from games, is you don't have that experience leading up to it of... I'm behind, behind, behind. Oh, is this the turn to do it? Am I supposed to do that? So like that mindset of, okay, you're facing down lethal. How do you avoid it? Whereas when I look at that and I go, I think you have lethal. How do you find lethal? That's how I'm looking at it. That mental shift is tough. Well, and I think some of that boils down to your tendencies in situations also, uh-huh. right? Like I, you tend to be a very aggressive player. I think when That's like when so you have crazy. the op- when you have the opportunity <laughs> to and not not like defaulting to aggressive decks, but I think taking aggressive lines. Yes, like I think you default to looking for lines that can put your opponents in really bad spots. And my default tendency as a Magic player is how can I play as I just want to be in a warm cocoon all the time. <laughs> like I don't want things to be able to go wrong. And so like I was in my native default mode here of like, how can things go wrong? How can I prevent things from going wrong? And I just didn't look at how they could go very right for me, you know? And it's so obvious just looking at it here. It's really interesting. It brings me to one point that I wanted to make at some point in this episode, which I think is an interesting way to cap things off here, which is, so I, I called into your stream earlier this week and we drafted a really sweet deck and the second game we played with it was really long. And I think we sort of got, as I said, at the end of the the game, 
we got ourselves into a bit of a bind. I think maybe with that, those those different mindsets or those different defaults that we have. I, I said it was a little bit like too many cooks because I don't think that like you know a lot of magic isn't black or white. Like there are some of these what's the place where it's like yes, so these are your two decisions. This is right. It's right to play Behold. It's wrong to play Ao. But a lot of decisions in magic are like it's just weighing options and like, okay, I'm going to do this thing because I want to do X, Y, Z next, or I'm going to do this thing because I see this matchup as whatever. Like there are, as I think the biggest thing to make sure you're doing is having a reason for something. And so when you have two people, especially in a game that goes long and has a lot of options, if two people's defaults are different, that may not be right or wrong, but you can get into trouble where like one turn we're following my thought process and then the next turn we follow your thought process, you know? Yes, I definitely think that happened in that game. And I definitely think that that is true and very real and can happen. But it also is good that you and I talk things out because we push each other to think outside of our default thinking zone as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like sometimes I remember that cards have text like menace and sometimes you don't. (laughs) Yeah, that that sort of thing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So we'll wrap it up there. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. And head on over to CFB's YouTube channel for free to check out our showdown videos. We post two of those every month. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. are two network disruptors and a searchlight companion. Untapped, enthusiastic mechanaut, moon this is too complicated, right? This is really complicated. This is this I was ju- I just got stuck on the dog holding the katana in its mouth and like going to town, ninja dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can't do this one. Never mind. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 